0: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have spent a while today looking at one video of Killer Mike comparing his arrest at the Grammys to the likes of Nelson Mandela and MLK. In the world's public enemy, Chuck D, breathing noise. On the 5th End Podcast Network, I am Chai Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. hope you have a good week. I hope you've had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, just, um, I don't know, you just have to go look for the video yourself, man. I, I, just, I, I refuse to believe that he literally quoted that he... He compared his arrest at the Grammys To his heroes wearing cuffs Heroes such as MLK Malcolm X And Nelson Mandela I I Brother you're at the Grammys This is not This is not It's different levels <laughs> Uh, You're not levels You're not levels just sniping and geese. I, I just can't I can't I've spent like two minutes just laughing hysterically at it. Um just yeah, just how absurd it sounds on the face. Um yeah, he's just a i he, he's he's such a he's a character that really deserves just attention, um, in some way. But not in the ways that he's getting in now where he's either getting, you know, gassed stuff for a Grammy win, which, you know, is fine, I guess, right? But then there's also just dumbasses and it goes, You should name Utopia. Why don't you pick not you pick Utopia? And like Kai Snat and, and them lot just uh was just like, Oh no, how how are you picking killer Mike? Who is this guy over Drake and uh Metro Booming and uh and Travis Scott? Like That's not the conversation we should be having. The conversation we should be having is why is Killer Killer Mike so indentured? And why is he so cozy to cops? Why does he believe black capitalism is the way forward? Stuff like that, you know, consequential things, you know? Not he got awards over Travis Scott. I could give a fuck about that shit. Fuck the Grammys, as always. I don't know. It's crazy. So, he's he's a character, indeed. Um, But, and I don't mind the majority of his music. I love his Run The Jewels stuff. Run The Jewels is the best uh, iteration of Killer Mike in my mind. But, oh man, just as a person, he has some views. I'm just like, not fucking with and It doesn't make sense. Anyway. Proof that uh, people have colour are into Monolith, I guess. Anyway. I'm tired as hell, I'm recording this um, Tuesday, th- uh, February 14th, obviously just well, just realised that it's the 14th tomorrow, <laughs> so I'm dropping on a Waskid Wednesday, on a Valentine's Day, um, so love to all of you, um, but you know, you should sure already know that regardless of it, whether it's the 14th or not, love you regardless, spread love regardless, um, and you know, I'm tired as hell. I'm just tired as hell, uh, it's it's 9pm, I'm recording this as late as possible, um, after this, I'm probably just gonna, scary get bed to be honest, like, I I got up at like 6.30 this morning, it was not a good wake up, um, and yeah, it's just been a, it's been a long day, I try not to nap, I'm not, uh, I try, yeah, I used to, the only time I napped in life was, um, during uni, I napped, a, I napped regularly at university, but, um, I don't know, I've just never done it in any other walk of my life, I've never done it during high school, didn't do it during sixth form, haven't done it since uni, it's a bit of a weird phenomenon on that front, I don't know why I did it during, well I was fine with it doing doing it during uni, but not anywhere else, I don't know, maybe just the lifestyle was different, I, know, I guess, I don't know, but you know, it is what it is, so with that said, since I'm tired as hell, Gonna try and bust through this one. <laughs> Let's try and make it under an hour, shall we? Um, I'm not gonna try and throw in too many thoughts, um, but you know, I'm not gonna promise. Uh, not gonna promise anything. Um, but yeah, we have some uh, good shows, th- Good show. This one. Good show. This one. I like this one. This is good. Um, so we got two uh, culture, um, society, and a politics, Whey, which we'll start with. So with that said, format will begin. Email, socials writing all of that in the full show notes as well as uh, the music for the show and podcast under the 5VPM our good friend Ben is coming through next week so I'm looking forward to that going to do some live-ish in person I guess uh, DITD recordings going to get as many of those in as possible and uh, just enjoy it just enjoy the time and hopefully he enjoys his uh, couple of weeks in London as well Um, of course that's the first and foremost of course but we to get these recordings in the Anyway, so that's gonna be fun. Looking forward to it. Um, I myself have um uh, a interview potentially coming next week here on Moss Goods. Um so uh might do that instead of a regular episode. We'll see how I go. We'll see how I feel on that front. If I feel if I feel like recording an episode and dropping an interview maybe on Thursday, so be it. Um, but You'll see it. You'll see it. You're you will gonna you're gonna get something on Wednesday. Uh, you're gonna get something at least. So know that for sure. Um, and also, I'm up a yeah. Just up a, going to see Rear Window in a cinema. I don't think I've uh, well I've never done that before. I was just debating if I've ever seen Rear Window. I've seen the bits a bit, but I haven't seen the whole film. So I'm looking forward to that. And also um, another uh, a documentary um, at I think it's no not Rich Mix um, Genesis Cinema um, in London. So uh, shout out to them. I'm gonna get into that. Um so yeah, gonna be a fun weekend, fun couple of weeks. Um but it's just yeah, it's gonna be long. Um and um my wallet will take a beating. So with that said, let the bee drop, let's get into the show. week where Benjamin Netanyahu rejects Hamas's 3-stage 135-day ceasefire deal and on top of that bombing Rafa um, RF, RAFAH and um, yeah if you've seen the, the pictures and videos this um it's not good it's not good um, the genocide continues ladies and gentlemen. uh Keir Starmer announces scrapping of 28 billion pound green investment so Already, um, Tory Light back in action. Um, not even gotten into the number ten yet, and already disappointing everybody. Outstanding and already not being serious. Um, a, pol- a a politic, um, is is that what is that how you term it? A body politic, a politic in the country, in a country. I don't believe is serious if they're not doing anything about climate change and clearly Labour don't do anything about climate change not not properly not the actual investment that's needed because the money spent now is stitching time saves nine that's all this is the more we do now the better the future will be and the less money and the less resource and less energy and less everything it will take out of us and tax us in the future so clearly Keir Starmer Labour Tory light, I'm not serious, and, and it's not even, I haven't even got a date for the general election yet, junior doxes in England to strike again after pay talks break down, Prince Harry is awarded substantial additional uh, damages in his claim against the mirror group, and uh, RIP in order world marathon record holder Kelvin Kiptum and his coach Gervais Hak Zimana die in a traffic accident. So let's begin with politics, and uh, this is, <laughs> so I've said before that I, I I see US politics sometimes as kind of a reality show, um, sometimes they just they are just doing the most wild shit over there, and it's just like, pff, could it be me, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's just, it's uh, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, um, but you know, this one's kind of serious, but again, also just kind of, Indicative of where we're at in society, um, in the West, um, overall. Um, I've labelled this episode um, partly gerontocracy, um, which is basically a uh, a society ruled by old people. That's literally what gerontocracy is. And um, this is related to that. So <laughs> the title is literally, get this guys, Pentagon-funded study warns dementia among US officials, poses this national security threat, I feel like, I feel like a study's not needed there, you know, I feel like a, I feel like that was obvious before, was it not, was it, was it, did it, did it need, <laughs> did it need Pentagon funding, um, in order to come to this conclusion that people that might have dementia, um, or any form of, you know, mental illness, uh, mental deteriorational illness, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, etc, etc. Um, any form of memory loss. I think that's bad. And I don't think they should be in politics. I don't think that's ageism. I think that's, you're just too old for this shit. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, this is written by Ken Klippenstein violent uh, The Intercept. Let's jump right in. As the national security workforce ages, dementia impacting U.S. officials poses a threat to national security. According to a first-of-its-kind study by a Pentagon-funded think tank, the report released this spring came as several prominent U.S. officials trusted with some of the nation's most highly classified intelligence experienced uh, public lapses, stoking calls for resi- resignations, and debate about Washington's aging leadership. Senator Mitch McConnell, um, who had a second freezing episode last month, enjoys the most privileged access to classified information of anyone in Congress as a member of the so-called Gang of Eight congressional leadership. Ninety-year-old Senator, Senator Dianne Feinstein, Feinstein, um, whose decline has seen her confused about how to vote and experiencing memory lapses, forgetting conversations, and not recalling a month-long absence, was for years a member of the Gang of Eight and remains a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, on which she has served in 2001. Um, just a note, this is from September 2023. Just wanted to say that, but I just saw this and I didn't even clock the date until now. But I think this is still very amusing, but also alarming. The study, published by the RAND Corporation's National Security Research Division in April, identifies in. excuse me, individuals with both current and former access to classified material who develop dementia as threats to national security, citing the possibility that they may unwittingly disclose government secrets. Individuals who hold or held a security clearance and handle classified material could become a security threat if they develop dementia and unwittingly share government secrets, the study says. As the study notes, there does not appear to be any publicly uh, available other publicly available research into dementia, an umbrella term for the loss of cognitive functioning, despite the fact that Americans are living longer than ever before, and that the researchers uh, were able to identify several cases in which senior intelligence officials died of Alzheimer's disease, a progressive brain disorder, and the most common cause of dementia. Um, And this is even more um, jarring, considering that Feinstein's dead now. Um, so that was after the fact of, uh, obviously this, uh, publishing, but still, yeah, exactly kind of proves the point, does it not? Um, anyway, as people live longer and retire later, challenges associated with cognitive impairment in the workplace will need to be addressed, the report says. Our limited research suggests this concern is an emerging security blind spot. Most, hold of it, most holders of uh, security clearances, a ballooning class of officials, and other bureaucrats with access to secret government information are subject to rigorous and invasive vetting procedures. Applying for a clearance can mean hours-long polygraph tests, character interviews with old teachers, friends and neighbours, and ongoing uh, automated monitoring of their bank accounts and other personal information. As one senior Pentagon official who oversees such a program told me of people who enter the intelligence bureaucracy, you basically give up your fourth amendment rights. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's as the author, I love America, just, America's so fascinating, like, is this, is this, they they, hold, they hold like, you know, the first amendment, the second amendment, they hold these shit so tight, and then people are just going like, yeah, to get this job, you basically give up your fourth amendment rights, it's like, nah, no biggie, no biggie, but, you know, all that stuff, Get oh, guns, oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't, don't have a talk about that it's uh, funny to me. Like, if, if it's all important, then it's all important. Don't just pick and choose what's important. Anyway, be serious about it. Um, Yet, yeah, as the as the authors of The Round Project note, there does not appear to be any vetting for age-related cognitive decline. In fact, the Directive of National Attendances' Directive on Continuous Evaluation contains no mention of age or cognitive decline. While the study doesn't mention any U.S. officials by name, its cu- timing comes amid a simmering debate about gerontocracy, ruled by the elderly. Following McConnell's first recent episode in July, Google searches for, ger- for the term gerontocracy spiked. <laughs> the president called to check on me, McConnell said, when asked about the first episode. I told him I got sandbagged, he quipped, referring to President Joe Biden's trip and fall accident during a June graduation ceremony at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado excuse me, which sparked conservative uh, criticisms systems about the eight-year-old's own functioning. Yeah, he can't talk. <laughs> Fucking saggy-toe-looking face. Anyway, uh, while likely an attempt by McConnell at deflecting from his lapse, Biden's age has emerged as a clear concern of voters, including Democrats, 69% of Democrats, say Biden is too old to effectively serve another term. An Associated Press Nork poll found last month. I wonder where those polls are at right now, especially how everyone's talking about it. Everyone keeps talking, talking, talking about it. Um, so, and, it, and it's why why I'm not surprised. Like uh, this uh, this presidential race, or what's going to be this presidential race. Obviously, it's not quite quite locked in, but we know who's going to be in it. Um, they were the oldest people to do it four years ago, so they're breaking their own record. <laughs> it's just aye, aye, aye. It's a yikes, big yikes. Anyway. The findings were echoed by a CNN poll released last week that found that 67% of Democrats said the party should nominate someone else, with 49% directly mentioning Biden's age as their biggest concern. As commander-in-chief, the president is the nation's ultimate classification authority, with the extraordinary power to classify and declassify information broadly. No other American has as privileged access to classified information as the president. The U.S.'s current leadership is not only the oldest in history, but also the number of older people in Congress has grown dramatically in recent years. In 1981, only 4% of Congress was over the age of 70. By 2022, that number had spiked to 23%. In 2017, Vox reported that a pharmacist had filled Alzheimer's prescriptions for multiple members of Congress. With little incentive for an elected official to disclose such an illness, it is difficult to uh, know just how pervasive the problem is. Feinstein's retinue, is that you say, a retinue of staffers um, have for years sought to conceal her decline, having established a system to prevent her from walking the halls of Congress alone and risk having an unsupervised interaction with a reporter. Jesus Christ, this is bad. Like, imagine that. Imagine like fucking like, a fucking prime minister or like a like a you know a notable um, secretary just um, having to get fucking shepherded around. Despite the public controversy, there's little indication any officials will resign or choose not to, receive re, not to seek re-election. Uh, after years of speculation about her retirement, 83-year-old speaker Emerita... Uh, Emer- Emerita? Yeah, Emerita. Emerita. Nancy Pelosi uh, stunned observers when she died on Friday that she would run for re-election, seeking 19th term. Okay. Okay, alright, alright, alright. There you go, so... Outstanding, love it. American politics just keeps getting better and better. Embrace the the gerontocracy. Salute, salute, salute. Outstanding. So I hop into culture, and this is all about the, well, the forefather of cultural studies. Um, this is all about Stuart Hall. A person that I've, um, you know, in recent years just have sort of come to really, really dive into. Um, I haven't dipped into his writing too hard. I've watched a few, you know, videos on him. Um, I watched his Open Door um, about black teachers. Um, open Door for those that don't know. I talked about this um, last year when I went to Raven Row and there was a, a exhibition there. Um, about uh, Open Door, which was a BBC, um, basically, public service show um, in the purest sense, where every episode was um, basically building on or, di- or having a dialogue about concern um, in a very localised way. So there was, like, a documentary about... Um, I think it was residents in Camden talking about squatters and stuff like that. And just the, you know, and just the, the regeneration of Camden, like back in the, I think, 80s. Um, and uh, Stuart Hall had one where he hosted um, basically a talk. Um, and it was about black teachers and, um, you know, pertaining to pay, obviously racism in the workplace, stuff like that. And uh, he was obviously a teacher himself, very famously. Um, could have gone to any university in the world but decided to go to the open university to do courses there. Um and even though he died in twenty fourteen, um his his uh ideas and his com and his dialogues um have are just still permeating and are still, you know, trying to be understood by wider society, um, and people don't even know it. Um, I sometimes have conversations in my head or with other people where I'm just, where I'm just like, there's a big chance that Stuart Hall just had this conversation like 30 years ago and we just don't even know, you know, he's just, he's just one of those guys, um, just ever, just an ever present voice, um, regardless of his, uh, death 10 years ago. But this is all about a manuscript, an unpublished manuscript, um, which has been uh, discovered So this is uh, via Luke Statesman, uh, written by Donna Ferguson. It's called The Discovery of Stuart Hall's A Cure for Marriage. So let's drop by him. He is famous for being the quote-unquote godfather of multiculturalism, a trailblazing left-wing cultural theorist and sociology professor who coined the term Thatcherism and revolutionised the academic study of popular culture, race, identity and politics in Britain. Now ten years after Stuart Hall died at the age of 82, an unpublished manuscript he co-wrote in 1968 has been in his ar- has been discovered in his archive. Imagine that, 68, bruv. Oh, can I imagine? The manuscript, which scholars uh, previously thought had been lost, is 80,000 to 100,000 words long, and offers extraordinary insights into how Hall developed his groundbreaking ideas about popular culture as he pioneered the first cultural studies programme in Britain. It is made up of different analyses of a contemporary short story, Cure for Marriage, by Nancy Burridge. Owen, I mean, which had appeared in the magazine Woman. Uh, oh, Nancy Burrage sorry. That's the whole name. <laughs> okay. A uh, Kill for Marriage by Nancy Burrage which had appeared in the magazine Woman. It centers on a dis- dissatisfied middle-aged housewife who goes to the cinema and enjoys a fantasy about having an affair with Cary Grant, which somehow enables her to remain uh, married to her passionless, unappreciative husband. Um, I went to... I did... Um, Uh, I did some teaching today, and um, the HR woman that was, like, uh, you know, taking care of me and just, um, you know, showing me the ropes of the place, right, Um, and giving me the necessary, uh, necessary, you know, information, had an unhealthy, an unhealthy amount of Gerard Butler Butler pictures, Um, an unhealthy amount of Gerard Butler pictures. Uh, There was a, uh, she had the calendar, she had just posters, uh, yeah, just um, it was more of that than their kids, let's just say that anyway. Carrying on, All Right, Uh, where was I at? <laughs> um, okay, Hall viewed this short story as essentially a case study of mass market popular culture and named his book A Cure for Marriage, a case study in method. The purpose of the book is to say that Excuse me. These are methods of cultural studies. This is what cultural studies is for, said Nick Beach, associate professor of social policy at the University of Birmingham, um, who found the manuscript while exploring Hall's archive. Each chapter is one form of analysis, analysis that you could conduct of that text. The annotated typewritten manuscript reveals a process that previously scholars have only guessed at. How Hall's thoughts and ideas changed as he and his graduate students collectively read and applied the cutting-edge work of famous structuralists from the 1950s and 1960s. The Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser, um, the literary critic Roland Barthes, and the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss to cultural studies for the first time. There are moments in in the manuscript, Beach Explained, where Hall scratches out sentences and replaces them with another. For example, at one point he inserts a word that comes from a very particular reading of Althusser. A-L-T-H-U-S-S-E-R, by the way, Althusser, that's how I'm saying it. Um, So you can see the editorial marks where he's introducing new readings to the cultural studies analysis and making a change, and that's very exciting. In the manuscript, Hall, an egalitarian, highly collaborative thinker who never published a single authored scholarly monograph in his life and rarely used the first person singular in his work, states that although he wrote the final text and commentary of A Cure for Marriage, 14 other scholars also contributed in some way. The most notable was Richard Hoggett, the English professor who founded the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham University in 1964, Britain's first culture studies centre. And in the same year, hired a then 32-year-old Hall to be his first research fellow. <coughs> Excuse me. It's, it is Hall's book, but it's his book with contribu- contributions from Hoggart and all the students at the centre. So it's a collaborative text, said Beach. It's constructed out of presentations at different seminars through the year. ...in which the book was made. It is Hall's only known... ...sustained collaboration with Hogger. There is a relationship revealed here... ...between Horn and Hogger, ...which is just which is just not evident anywhere else... ...Beach told me. Hoggart and Hall presented Owen's cure for marriage... Uh, ...to their graduate students at the centre as the randomly chosen text they were going to study but while Hoggart was content for the students to treat uh, the short story as a coherent literary object analyzing it for tone and language the way they might with a work of great literary quality Hall had already realized the limitations of this approach to an object of popular culture as Beach put it uh, what Hall starts to notice is that Hoggett's approach is inadequate. And it doesn't really help us understand what's happening in mass culture. It only gets you so far because there are limits to what what such analysis and analysis enables you to understand and register within the material. See, I feel like this is where, um, this is me talking, this is where um, English lessons um, in schools, in high schools especially, um, kind of fail. Um, you know, they they talk about that literary analysis, I actually had that conversation with uh, somebody, with a kid today, where they were going to me, why am I being told to read this book here, in this book about this, right, and, um, you know, analyze the meaning of this, when they probably just sat down and wrote that shit, right, and didn't think about it, and it's funny, because I had that same thought, exact same thought, when I was in high school, exact same thought, reading my, of my cement men, and going like, he didn't fucking care about this shit, he just wrote a fucking book, da, 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 right, and, you know, the answer is obviously, you know, wrong there, my, my, my thought process back then was clearly wrong, obviously, you know, writers, literary people, um, whether it be screenwriters, novelists, essayists, whatever, you know, they don't put stuff in there just to put stuff in there, um, I mean, there are, you know, minor cases of that happening here and there, but a majority of the time, people make texts with a lot of effort, and um, sometimes you guys just don't even see, you know, you, 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 sometimes people write, um, and I've done this a couple of times in my own work, uh, where you have, you're hiding a lot, you're hiding a lot of research from one thing, you're, you're hiding, you know, um, a ton of context you're burying it stuff like that and you you know you you give people threads um to 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 work on um if they're if they're you know if, if they want to um but you know looking at it in the way hoggett did and you know the literary sense and stuff like that and tone and structure whatever right is one thing um but you know seeing its cultural element is also valid as well anyway continuing on and I've lost my, <laughs> I've lost my, <laughs> Some at some point I apparently scrolled all the way down. So now I have to try and find where I was. Great. <laughs> I fucking stared Anyway, let's try and find it. <laughs> well, Hall started to know, okay, there we go. Beach thinks this was, uh, think it was uh, this realisation that Hogger's approach was inadequate when it came to analysing work like *Here for marriage that led Hall to read Bart. Um, B-A-R-T-H-E-S for those trying to look them up, and Levi Strauss, spelt Levi Strauss, and Altasa for the first time. An important moment in Hall's intellectual trajectory. The line that some people have told in the past is that Hall read all these theorists, and then he thought, what can we do with them? But I think Hall was already trying to do the kinds of analysis he wanted to do. He just couldn't quite manage it with the intellectual tools he had at hand and then he started reading this literature from continental Europe, where other people were doing similar work, and he found some solutions in this literature. For example, Cary Grant is at one point in A Cure for Marriage compared to the intermediary figure in Levi Strauss's account of mythology, not a hunter or the hunter's prey, which gives life to the hunter, perpetually forcing these characters into a tense, contradictory relationship of life and death, but a carry-on uh, C-A-R-I-O-N, carry on, a character like a crow, which does not kill, but lives off the dead flesh of other animals. Cary Grant as a fantasy figure becomes a meditation, uh, mediation, sorry, um, I, I always get that confused, I always think meditation first, but it's mediation. For the contradictions or crises, crisis, uh, which is always present within the expected norms of what a marriage should be, said Beach, the problems don't get resolved. They just get solved by the fact that Cary Grant exists in this particular form, which is not real. Evidence from the newly Discovered manuscript suggests Hall was trying to solve a a practical problem, how to teach his students to analyse cure for marriage more effectively. And that is what drove him to expand his reading. According to Beach, when Hall starts introducing continental theories of culture to the seminars, these are the books he was reading for the first time. He added that this is something Hall uh, himself reflected on uh, later, that as nobody had taught contemporary cultural studies before, the centre didn't have a set of reading texts. He said, what was the bibliography of cultural studies? Nobody knew. And that's evident in the way this manuscript reads. You can see it happening before your very eyes, in the passages where he's crossed out terms and then replaced it with something new. By the end of the book, Hall is convinced that structuralism is key to understanding mass culture. So rather than read the text as it is, as a coherent object uh, that you can interpret, he starts to say, no, this is registering deeper structural relationships and a set of conditions about why there is a tension within marital relationships in Western societies. And actually, these can't be resolved. And so this Cary Grant figure that appears is a way of mediating an underlying unresolved contradiction. Hall concluded that the short story is highlighting an issue about women's sexuality and marriage that is p- uh, present in the hu- in the whole of society. Uh, Hall is saying this is a story that means something to us because we can see that this that it's a problem for everyone. The book was written uh, when the women's liberation movement was starting to take shape. That's what really that's what's really interesting about this uh, text as well. It doesn't have a fully developed feminist argument that can actually suggest why there is a problem with the marriage contract, as it's understood in Britain at the time, but it has the beginnings of one. Beach said it's not clear yet yet uh, not yet clear why the manuscript was never published, uh, but that a covering note f- uh, to an editor from Hall written around 1970 admits that it's already out of date, being pre the new feminism. Uh, there, <laughs> there has been a little rewriting which catches up l- later ideas, but not much. Hall wrote, adding modestly, that he wondered whether a slimmed form might nevertheless be, a worthy, be worthy of publication. He then warned, guard with your life. It's the only copy in existence. Hall donated his archive to the University of Birmingham on his, upon his death and the University of speech and others to investigate the archive as part of a 1000000 million million-pound three-year project of foster engagement with Hall's work. Well, I like the sound of that. Let me engage. Uh, Beach is hopeful that the manuscripts he discovered will finally be published so they can be read by fans of Hall's work and cultural studies scholars around the world. Reading this book is a bit like sitting next to somebody on Sigmund Freud's couch. We know the ideas of psychoanalysis Freud Freud ended up publishing, but we didn't know how he actually did it. Similarly, Uh, scholars know there was a big shift in Hall's ideas from 1966 when he was writing literary essays about the arts of popular culture to 1970 when he had already uh, integrated structuralist theories into his work. But we didn't have the bit in between which shows why and how he shifted from one to the other. This is a text that shows us that shift and it resolves a lot of debates that have been going on ever since about uh, why he made that move. In the early 1960s, Hall has started to recognise that there had been a shift in the consciousness of working class people and others in Britain, that people were seeing and understanding themselves differently to how they were in 1955. He's able to say, look, these new youth subcultures are where something, is, uh, something is really, hap- really is happening, which means that the nature of the working class is not going to be the same again. But what he's not able to, uh, to do at the time is say, this is how it's going to affect politics and impact on political policies going to lead to struggles and confrontations in cultural and political and economic forms at different levels by the mid-1970s after discovering uh, developing uh, his ideas about popular culture at the center for contemporary cultural studies hall was able to predict major changes to britain's political culture he is able to say it is going to be around questions of law and order and de and race and the composition of the working class is going to change This is going to lead to what he calls authoritarian populism. And then, with the arrival of Thatcher in the late 1970s, he's the first to say, Thatcherism is going to change British society. This manuscript reveals how he developed those ideas. Quotes, it tells us, this is how he changed and shifted cultural studies analysis. Unquote. So yeah, look forward to diving into that one day. Hopefully I can do that. Uh, That'll be really cool to dive into. Um, Sounds really fascinating. I'll do... And I do find it interesting, um, I probably will value it much later in life, um, as I, you know, actually start reading his work, um, I want to start reading his, uh, work on police, specifically, um, that, that, I've heard that's very interesting, so, yeah, you know, once we get, once we get there, we, we will get there, ladies and gentlemen, we'll get there, it's all part of the journey, it's all part of the journey. okay let's hop in to our society segment um and i put in the full description um a link to an earlier episode that was good where i talked about a significant win uh, for the local brixton community against a uh, I think it was like a land firm or a yeah some, something firm um but uh, yes and uh, construction firm let's just say that right and um you know, while that's a while that was a great dev, a development firm, there you go, development specifically, um, and while that was really good, um, episode 236, um, it's in the full show notes um, in this segment, um, there's communities that are continuously under threat, including Brixton, obviously still under threat, um, and forever will be, um, but recent one um, covered here via Byline Times, um, via I- Ian Overton's Overton window, um, I, I'm assuming a column, uh, column of sorts um, is uh, Shepherd's Bush Market um, so I wanted to um, read this one and get into this uh, and uh, talk about this as well so this is called You Over to Window Flip It and Sell It The Threat to Shepherd's Bush Market The shelves of hone books are filled with promise the promise of reading of exciting careers of childhood dreams actualized. Today's a re- today's reader Today's a reader Tomorrow's a leader says a sign that hangs above an owl standing resplendent in Elizabethan costume There a soft toy hedgehog nestles, a children's history of Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, peaks beneath its paws. A book to the side promises 1001 pirate things to spot, a haven of childish wonder in West London. Piracy, though, feels too close to a theme uh, to the bookshop's owner, Meren Gwigner, um, a 39-year-old Ethiopian refugee. She risks being kicked out of her little refuge here in the heart of Shepherd's Bush Market, a raid on her sanctuary by what she sees as, as the big uh, venture capitalist guns. Her bookstore seems to lay a cornerstone of the community, a heart, a new heart of a market whose stores have stood here for 109 years. The traders have faced many threats. In February 1944, a German bug hit the market, destroying six shops. You once could buy second-hand paperbacks at the bookseller and sell them back at half price when you finish reading them, says the market website, perhaps not... perhaps not for much longer. Today her shop and many others along this busy road in West London risks closure. This street filled with North African fruit and veg traders, halal butchers, pet shop, Chinese takeaways and cheap lingerie stalls faces a radical overhaul. A contentious redevelopment plan approved by Hammersmith and Fulham Council in December 2023 needs just Masary Khan's signature to go ahead. In a vote of three to two, the council gave the development proposed by a company called U Capital Y O O The Green Light. Over a thousand people have petitioned Khan to halt the change. Among the signatories is Merrin. She faces eviction today, Friday, the of February, um, unless she agrees to sign a new lease agreement. Oh it's got a burp, excuse me. I'm trying to get there but it ain't coming. Um she, unless she agrees to sign a new lease agreement. Uh, which includes allowing the landlord unfettered access to her shop and imposing liability on her for any structural damage she can't afford the risk she says last year she made 1500 pounds in sales the shop cost her 2000 pounds to run it's a labour of love not a commercial one but this space means a great deal to her quote people see me and they come in she says the thing is it's not this their space if they see a white person my main aim was to reach out to people who would never go to a library. People say representation does not matter, but it does matter. People get inspired. I wanted to bring books to the community, unquote. Hers is a mission of inclusion and knowledge. The money is secondary. U Capital Group, by comparison, made a post-tax profit of £5 million in 2022, up 25% from the year before. Now having acquired the majority of the market sites in 2020, they propose a nine-story commercial building atop existing uh, market shops, alongside the refurbishment of some stalls and the construction of 40 new council-managed homes. Critics argue that such developments will lead to increased rents, push out long-standing traders, and alter the market's character. Merenguigna has sleepless nights over all of this. The lease agreement she was sent by them is hard to read and hard to swallow. She was only given five days to respond. And there's a phrase that worries her in the legalese. It's tenancy at will agreement, which her own pro bono lawyer advises her offers her little in terms of stability or autonomy. Could U Capital's contract effectively restrict her operational hours? Does signing this dense contract end some of her rights? As she told U Capital, I will not... Or should not have to, to tolerate rudeness, discrimination or racism. She objects to U capital uh, using images of her shop in their marketing campaigns, showing the Instagram friendly snaps of her books and the homely shop uh, homely shop online <coughs> excuse me. She objects to the way she has been called a prototype for the sort of community building activities U capital promises. She objects to those uh, terms uh, cold terms and conditions to the endless stress to the bullying she claims she has received. There's a saying in Ethiopian, she says, there's art to being ugly. (laughs) There's art to being ugly, (laughs) okay. These people don't even have that. Art to being ugly. Mm, I like that. As we finish talking, a U Capital Manager starts showing around a prospective investor. They object to having their photographs taken. A few minutes later, security guards appear with a site manager hovering there, awkward at my elbow. A trader mouths the word wankers. I'm assuming that's wankers. W- yeah, wankers definitely. Um, as the management shuffles to the side, it's not just the legal uh, legal letters. The claim bullying, uh, the accusations of intimidation. The project has raised concerns over inadequate carbon offsetting measures on the commercial building, falling far short of both local and Greater London Authority targets. U Capital has committed one point eight million pounds in carbon offset payments. They have also told the local traders they will not have their rent increase until five years after the completion of the refurbishment. But there's still the question of the intent lurking at the heart of this palm uh heart of this plan, sorry. Pilot Times have been have seen a 2019 briefing for U Capital that is strictly confidential, an investment strategy centred on transforming real estate assets in the UK, specifically in the Greater London area, with with a focus on opportunistic investments. In it, the uh, company uh, proposes a strategy with a, quote, exit exit envisaged, God, I hate that word, hate envisaged, horrible, horrible saying, horrible phrasing, envisaged, doesn't sound right, doesn't sound like a word, envisaged in eight to ten years through sale of, of the assets, unquote. It is understood this is an old strategy and does not reflect the plans of the market, but... In the absence of seeing a new confidential strategy, uh, the company still stands accused of investing in the market in order to flip it and sell it on. Protect Shepherds Bush Market, an opposition group to the development, mourns such a threat in the future, uh, will mark, quote, the end of Shepherds Bush Market as an affordable and diverse market serving the local community, unquote. Some traders in the row agree, but won't go on record. They are worried about what might happen if they kick up a fuss. but not But not all are sceptical. Paul Bardini, a 69-year-old trader whose grandfather started working in the market in 1919, running an auction house, believes the investment will give the market a facelift and will and bring in new customers. Why wouldn't you capital make a profit, he says. A man born and bred in the bush, today standing in for his son in front of the shop. It's a haberdashery his uh, family owns outright and is not slated for redevelopment. Unless you change with the times, like a comedian he said, you'll get crushed in the rush. He's not alone. Other traders have also voiced their support for the development. U Capital themselves uh, reject the concerns of traders such as Merrin and emphasize their commitment to the Shepherds Bush market community through extent- extensive yeah, uh, cons- consultation, financial and practical support for traders and efforts to exceed operational carbon reduction targets, underscoring they claim a nuanced approach to the redevelopment. In the end there are two sides of the argument modernise or preserve. The Saga of Shepherd's Bush Market is emblematic of the broader struggles facing London and any and other British cities' historic markets, caught between the pressures of modern development and the need to maintain unique identities and serve their communities. The outcome in Shepherd's Bush Market will not only determine the future of hone books galore, but also sets a precedent for the preservation of community spaces in the face of seemingly relentless urban development and the endless promise of profits. <sighs> yeah, I'm waiting for the day when um, this is the where this exact same thing happens to something like um, um, so some like Brick Lane, for example. Um, you know, one Brick Lane is such a fascinating place that you once you enter, even the space of Brick Lane, right, once you enter the street officially, Brick Lane, right, once you, once you see those bricks, once you see those, those, those roads, and once you walk down them, the smells, the, the sights are so, they're so isolated from anything else in London, it's, it's like you just entered another world, it's so fascinating, it's so multicultural, and it's beautiful, man, it's the same as, it's the same in Brixton, right, did you, once did you, once you go to like one place in London and then go to and then go to Brixton, it's just a different world again. you turn left and then it's just people selling stuff and then you do another left and there's more market stuff. It's just fascinating, bro it's just fascinating um Camden market, paul Bella Road these are just like such iconic spots and um to in things need to be preserved. Um If if it can be modernised and preserved, if there's a balance between there, sure. But I don't think U Capital sees it like that. I don't think any business of modern capitalistic post late capitalistic proportions see shit like that. They just don't. It's impossible. Otherwise they wouldn't do it. They see profit they see people that they can easily squash and throw money at and boom. Done. Block of flats. Whatever they want. You know what I mean? And just the whole thing has just changed. And um, you know, it's a shame. It's a real shame to have that. Um I wish these places could be, you know, protected. I wish these places could be protected and preserved. Um and just really, you know, have those just those little hidden gems in London. That's why, that's why I love London as a city, it's so fascinating, just these just these little areas that you go to, just these little markets, you know, and then just these little, you, you, you're on a main road and then boom, you just do a right and something, something's just changed all of a sudden, you know what I mean, the smells or the sights have changed somewhat and it's just fascinating man, you could do, you could do that anywhere in London and Shepherd's Bush Market is obviously one of those, um, so yeah man. That shit needs to be preserved. I've just realised something. I ain't posted the ITD today. That's funny. (laughs) Anyway, let's jump. Into the last topic, last segment, uh, continuing on with culture, second culture segment, and, uh, you know, I have to, sometimes I just have to go back to hip-hop, you know what I mean, just to refresh you lot on, on some things, you know what I mean, it's always worth it, it's always re- worth a refresher. So, let's get into this one, this is written by Dwayne Oxford, excuse me, Dwayne Oxford, via Al Jazeera, it's called Black Parent Edutainment, the political roots of hip-hop music. <laughs> Excuse me, it's drop right in. Okay, I guess I'm going to have hiccups and whatever as I do this last one. Great. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with a baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far, because the man with the tow truck repossessed my car. It was nineteen eighty two, and as New York was emerging from one of the worst financial crisis, crises in its history, these lyrics by Grandmaster Flash and Furious Fire struck a chord with listeners. The message, a gritty indictment of the city's failed institutions, is broadly viewed as the origin of political hip-hop in the US. You are into the blowback against civil rights and black power movements, where people are trying to roll back the gains that were made during that time frame, political scientist Adolphus Belk, co-author of For the Culture, Hip-Hop and the Fight for Social Justice, told Al Jazeera. The song's success was intertwined with the rise of Ronald Reagan, who served as US president for most of the 1980s. Belk noted Reaganomics, the term applied to his neoliberal neoliberal economic policies, rewarded the managerial class. Uh, I forgot Al Jazeera do this shit where they constantly split words up and put a dash in it. So I'm seeing eco and then this dash and then nomic on the next line. It just throws me the fuck off. I can't. This this happening so many times already on this page and I'm just starting. It's annoying the hell out of me already anyway. Can't zoom out. Nope, can't even zoom out. No page zoom. No. Nope. Okay. Actually, I could page zoom. What am I doing? I have a freaking phone. Let me just page zoom. Default zoom. Zoom out a little bit. That's better. Look at that. That's great. All right. 78% looks good. Let's try that. Okay, let's start again there. Reaganomics, the term applied to his neoliberal economic policies, rewarded the managerial class while neglecting society's most vulnerable communities, disproportionately african americans and latinos the newly cr- ma- created marginalized class in the inner cities would be plagued by poverty bad schools drug- drugs and gang violence our arts programs suffered massive cuts so we went from good times to hard times and the music changed to reflect what was happening in the society Belk said the seeds of hip-hop's countercultural movement had begun to sprout decades earlier in August 1973, when Clive Campbell, better known as DJ Kool Herc, threw a back-to-school party with his sister in the Bronx, Borough of New York. They needed a musical act, but hiring one would have been prohibitively, prohibitively expensive. Instead, Kool Herc brought out his own sound system and did what he did best, jumping from one record's break to another with expert timing. He revolted. He did not want to play the disco music we heard on the radio. Rapper Curtis Blow said in Netflix series Hip Hop Evolution, highly recommend. By the way, did some reviews on those on the 5V Medium. If you want to go spin those, really good reads and really good show. He wanted to give us the music that we grew up on, the soul music, and it was incredible because in a world of disco, here is this DJ coming out playing this kind of special kind of music, and this was so important to the birth of hip hop that we're going to be playing funk music. Hip-hop has since grown into a culturally impactful uh, form of artistic expression, gaining millions of fans while tapping into global phenomena. Its addictive beats and powerful political messaging, experts say, have propelled the genre's broad appeal from the US to the global south. This momentum began to build rappers' delights. Uh, Released by Sugar Hill Gang in 79, was credited with introducing hip-hop to an audience outside the five boroughs in New York. Borrowing from the glitzy and fun-filled themes of mainstream music, the song appealed to a wide cross-section of music fans, eventually planting itself uh, itself on popular shows such as American Bandstand and Soul I have to do it like that. You have to do it. In the years that followed, spurred on by the message, a budding movement grew alongside the glamorous world, world of party hip-hop. Through the late 1980s and early early 90s, Afrocentricity and black consciousness started to permeate the culture, Belk noted. In 1989, artist K.R.S. One, who popularized the term edutainment to describe the use of social commentary via hip-hop music, co-founded a movement called Stop the Violence. Its goal was to address the pervasive violence in black communities. The movement released a single uh, titled uh, self-destruction accompanied by a music video that delivered anti-violence messaging. It was an unprecedented moment in the industry, spurring other artists to follow suit by tackling issues such as gang violence in their lyrics. Notably, while self-destruction focused on artists from the U S East coast scene, a group of artists on the West coast were inspired to release a complimentary track uh, following the, year, uh, the following year titled we're all in the same gang in this era the political lane of hip-hop functioned like an unofficial advi- advocacy group to combat social ills, experts say. One of the many pioneers of political hip-hop was Public Enemy, who, um, just so you know, uh, we've been doing a couple episodes on them uh, in D- Digging Digits, if you want to go spin those, part three coming next week. Whose very names refer to the marginalisation and targeting of black people in the US. The group's work evokes the messaging of organisations such as Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam, which advocate for African-American rights. Hakeem Shemez, perhaps best known for his 1988 single, Black Is Back, was heavily influenced by the Nation of Islam and its offshoot, The 5% Nation. He espoused the importance of black nationalism and community self-determination in his lyrics. we got to struggle and fight against apartheid. Who are these people telling us where to live and die? Such influences can be found in intros and songs across the genre, with terms such as knowledge of self and dropping jewels, attributed to the 5% Nation, becoming hip-hop staples. Early hip-hop pioneers talk about the influence of the nature of Islam in particular, and the messages of community empowerment, self-determination, and upliftment. Suad Abdul Kabir, a professor of Arab and Muslim American Studies, uh, and and author of Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States, told Al Jazeera. I've been meaning to read that. I don't know if I put it on my wish list, Um, either on like Audible or something, but... Uh, I remember wanting to read that, so I need to find that somewhere. See how much is um how many uh, many hip hop songs and skits are peppered with language and speeches that pay tribute to Black Islam. Big Daddy Kane's nineteen eighty eight song Eight and a Half Stepping contains the lyrics Hold up the peace, sign s s l s l a m e l a k u m. Am I saying the one like? I think I'm saying it. S l a m e l a k u m. S l a m e l a k u m. That's how they say it in Referencing the Arabic greeting, in the early 1990s, Brand Nubian released the album In God We Trust, with the first track titled Allah-u-Akbar, Arabic for God is the Greatest. Queen Latifah, whose 1989 single Ladies First, ooh, Ladies First, Ladies First, love that song, um, became an anthem for female empowerment, uh, said she chose her name, uh, from an Arabic book and strove to present women as queens in charge of their own destinies. As recently as 2020, rapper, rapper Buster Rhymes, a self-identified uh, member of the 5% Nation, featured natured- Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan on his album. The influence of Malcolm X, a Muslim American minister and humorous activist, has been particularly notable. His speeches were cut and remixed in songs throughout the 1990s, a trend that continues to this day. Gangster's Tons of Guns, released in 1994 to address the scourge of illegal guns in black neighborhoods, kicks off with a snippet from a 1963 speech by Malcolm X: "Quote, if violence is wrong in America, violence is wrong abroad. If it's wrong, if it's wrong to be violent defending black women, and black children, and black babies and black men, then it's wrong for America to draft us and make us violent abroad in defense of her." Unquote. The album, By All Means Necessary, released in 1988 by Boogie Down Productions, drew inspiration for its cover art from the famous photo of Malcolm X peeking through a window while holding a rifle as he guarded his family. More recently, in a 2022 song uh, title, <laughs> titled Michael and Quincy, the rapper, American rapper Nas referenced the assassination of Malcolm X at the Audubon uh, board, Ballroom in New York in 1965 with the lyrics, Malcolm X departed at the Audubon, seen many slaughtered, I'm numb, Never mortified. While some artists explicitly embrace their Muslim identity, others incorporate such references more subtly or we'll use hip hop as a means of expressing their unique experiences, experts say. Just last month, the Jacker, a Muslim lyricist who was shot dead in uh, California in uh, 2015, was honored with a local art exhibition showcasing his connection with Islam and his impact on the hip hop scene. Black Islam shapes hip hop. Hip hop shapes young Muslims to return them back. To Black Islam, Kebir said, while various artists might relate to Islam in different ways, she added, what they share is an engagement with the Muslim tradition and its unwavering commitment to Black liberation. Today, that legacy remains intact, even though political hip hop might not be uh, might not be as prominent as it was in decades past, according to industry experts. Gone are the days when many radio DJs had the autonomy and independence to become tastemakers. As media companies have bought up radio stations, and exerted ever greater control over music promotions, the music, the modern music economy and streaming culture have also dramatically changed how fans discover music. Why is intelligent an American hip hop artist and author of free, free out of five an or fifths of an MC? There you go, free fifth an MC. Uh, is just free backslash five and MC, so three-fifths and MC, I'm seeing Uh, the manufacturing of a dumbed-down rapper, told Al Jazeera that the genre's heyday in the 1990s, quote, was a time when the corporations didn't really understand the power of hip-hop is influence, unquote. These youth, they're mobilizing youth against poli- uh, police terrorism, Ronnie King, Apar- apartheid South Africa, all of these things, he said. The hip-hop a community was on the ground, and in the messaging it was, we were on the front lines. Uh, indeed, police brutality, uh, has long been a common topic in hip hop from large professors, just a friendly game of basketball, baseball, sorry, uh, which uses the sport as an analogy for how police officers have brutalized members of the black community to Rhapsody's these 12 problems, which highlights the lack of official, uh, accountability. Little Baby, a nice not necessarily known for touching on political subjects, released The Bigger Picture in 2020 with an accompanying video about George Floyd, a black man who's murdered by a Minneapolis police officer, sparked massive street protest. Political topics by, uh, covered by hip-hop tracks range from the mainstream to the obscure, from the global to the hyperlocal. Public enemies By The Time I Get To Arizona, my favourite um, public enemy song, um, as a pro- served as a protest against the state's decision in 1987 to cancel uh, Martin Luther King Day. Beef by Karis One, a song about the politics of mass meat production. tells the benefits of vegetarianism and points to the pitfalls of uh, the agribusiness industry. Uh, He has drugs to make the cow grow quicker. Uh, Through the stress of the cow gets sicker, 21 different drugs are pumped into the cow in one big lump. In a similar vein, Be Healthy by Dead Prayers, released in the year 2000, sounds almost like a public service announcement for having a balanced diet. I don't eat no meat, no dairy, no sweets. only ripe vegetables, fresh fruit, and the whole wheat, uh, and whole wheat. I'm from the old school. My household smell like soul food, bro, curried falafel, barbecue tofu. Interesting meal. Um, Although American artists ushered in the era of social commentary via hip-hop, its reach today extends far beyond the West, with lyricists emerging from everywhere, uh, from the global South to countries of war. In Senegal, hip-hop duo Ketine Zouman, I'm assuming that's how I say it, address many many of the country's social uh, and political ills through their music. In a project called Journal Rap, or Rappé, uh, they rap about the latest news, tackling topics that range from terrorism to religion. In Ukraine, which has been at war since Russia's uh, February 2022 invasion, Alyona Alyona covers everything from body positivity to the ongoing devastation of her country. In Israel, the con- uh, the controversial track Charbu Darbu" uh, by hip-hop duo Nessen Stiller, um, which describes Israeli army units raining hell on the rats advocating for Palestine, rose to the top of the charts in the wake of 7th sept- uh, October Hamas attacks as Israeli military launched a relentless bombardment of Gaza that has killed more than 26,000 people. Uh, days after the release of Chabu Chabu, Charbu Darbu, sorry, British uh, hip-hop artist and pro-Palestinian activist, Low Key, released his own track in solidarity with the people of Gaza. He told Al Jazeera, quote, I hope that the song can serve as a small part of driving home, just how significant these events are for us as, humani- as humanity. This is a really her- horrific chapter in modern history, human history, when it comes to this issue of control and attempt to subjugate a population. Unquote. Uh, Regardless of their historical or cultural backgrounds, artists from around the world have for decades used hip-hop as a vehicle for their political views and social ideals. When institutional shortfalls are identified, their lyricism can step in as a reminder that course correction is needed, experts say. It can also spur action. Record executive Russell Simmons, co-founder of the Hip-Hop Summit Action Network, used the platform to raise awareness about the need for drug law reforms in New York State in 2003. The following year, new legislation was passed to ease sentencing restriction for drug offenders. To this day, hip-hop's popularity endures, um, as advocates say the genre creates space for alternative ideas and ways of connecting with the world. As Keros once once said, rap is something you do, hip-hop is something you live. And, you know, to... I think it's probably... Good to leave things on a careless one quote because let's be real, I'm not going to do better. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth M Podcast Network, I'm Richard Taylor. This bit what's good intro music. <coughs> excuse me, was intro uh, intro music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Short Music for bit to use. You can find both links in the full show notes. And shouts to a friend of Five b Nappy High for bit to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said. I do after the week. I should always try and do the same. Until the next time. Take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.